Welcome to the Wealth Studying Podcast. This is episode 110. It's May 15th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, welcome to the podcast. Today's episode, I'm going to get right to the point. I'd mentioned that I would be speaking about 112-hour work week. Well, I'm going to put that off for one more podcast. I know some of you are curious about that. But in light of the many comments and questions I've received this week, I'm going to modify today's show and talk to you instead about the importance of being patient, and I'm going to reiterate my position on remaining in cash during turbulent markets. And that isn't always the case, but that's the case in today's market. This is just my opinion. In this podcast, I never give you recommendations or advice. I simply talk about what's on my mind. I give you an idea of the investment decisions and choices that I'm making. I try and inform you, let you know what's going on in current events. Ultimately, though, I not only want you to make up your own mind, I'm hopefully encouraging you how to think, and for some of you, I'm trying to reinforce the thought process of critical thinking. It's not really something they teach in school. Most of us, because we get wrapped up in emotion and politics and other things like that, we don't always look at things from a logical and a rational basis. And so as much as anything, this Wellsteading podcast is about teaching you how to think and encouraging you to do that for yourself. I also want to mention, too, based on many comments that I've received in the past, say, couple weeks, and a lot of this is from new listeners. I know many of you haven't either gone back and listened to previous episodes or haven't yet gotten caught up with what I've said in the past. I'm pretty sure that any of you that have been listening for any length of time know what I'm going to say, but for those of you that might be new and, and, you know, tuning in for the first couple times, this podcast isn't about specifically giving you investment advice, right? It's not called, like, an investment podcast. It's called the Wealthsteading Podcast, and that's a takeoff of the term homesteading. You know, a hundred years ago, people used to homestead. They'd get a couple acres of land, they'd build their home, they'd, they'd have gardens and farms, maybe have cows and chickens, and they'd work that land, and they'd try and feed their family from that land, and then anything they had extra, they'd sell that and, and try and build up a reserve. Well, today in the urban and modern environment we live in, most of us don't live on you know, many acres of land where we can actually homestead, but it's my thoughts that we can wealthstead. We're in an age of humanity because of the information systems and the way our economy set up that I believe that over a period of, you know, 10 or 20 years, the average American, and I say that loosely, my target audience is obviously primarily the American market. I live in America. I speak American English. I know we have many listeners in Australia and Britain and Canada. And even having said that, I know we have, you know, listeners even in countries that don't predominantly speak English. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking of our very good friend out there in Malaysia. So I know you guys are out there. I hear from you. And the basic things I talk about in wealth building principles, these things are principles. And so they do apply. They apply anywhere. You don't just have to live in America. Those of you that I've spoken to in Saudi Arabia, different places, we've, we've communicated via email. You've told me how you're building your wealth. You've told me the processes you're using. And, you know, it all comes down to earning and saving and then putting that money to work for you in different investment strategies. So those are the basic principles. I generally talk about America because even though I've traveled all around the world in business, I live in America. I know America. And so I focus on America. It's not anything American-centric about it. It's, you know, it's just where I live. And the point I want to make here is that I call this podcast Wealth Steading, and I talk about teaching wealth building principles, not necessarily stock trading principles. There's a great deal of interest in that. I spend a lot of time talking about it. Generally, every episode, we'll talk about 
a market review, or at least I'll do a cursory review of what's happening, you know, with a market and current events. But my intent is not to provide you with hot stock tips or to teach you specific trading strategies. If you look in iTunes and you'll look, see the title of my podcast and then where it says the author's name, you know, my name, under that subtitle, I talk about this podcast being an alternative to other, I list other shows and radio shows and podcasts. And I mean that sincerely. And I'm not saying that those other shows or that talent there that I list, I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm not saying that they're inaccurate. I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to them. That's not the point at all. I just mentioned that this podcast is an alternative to them. You know, it would be my thoughts that if I was talking about the same thing that everybody else was talking about, then, you know, why would you listen to me? I wouldn't have any need to create a podcast. I'm really providing this podcast because I do think it's an alternative to what you're hearing out there. If you do want hot stock tips, then you should probably listen to somebody like Jim Cramer. Again, I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but that's what his show is all about. Now, those of you that have been listening for quite a while, I think you get what I'm doing here. I think you understand that I'm teaching wealth building principles overall. And then obviously to make it interesting and to help you be better investors in things, I, I do try and give you a very clear idea of what I'm doing. Now, because I am a registered investment advisor, I'm cautious not to make specific recommendations. And that's why oftentimes I don't tell you specifically what I'm invested in. Now, I'll come back to that in a second. I am looking into the legality of that because I am licensed and many other shows or people that you listen to, they're not licensed and they're not bound by the same fiduciary requirements that I'm bound by. I won't go into all the details of the minutia, but there are a lot of rules and regulations that you have to adhere to when you're a licensed representative. And I want to make sure I'm as clearly on the side, the right side of the law as I can be. Now in future episodes and as the show develops and my blog develops, you may see me giving you more details about specifically what I'm investing in. But I'm only going to do that once I'm absolutely sure that I'm in compliance with all the rules and regulations. Now having said that, I don't hold back on what I'm doing. Go back and listen to shows in March. Go back and listen to all the episodes between the end of October and the end of the year. You'll hear me give some very specific, timely advice about exactly what I was doing, other than the fact that I didn't mention specific stocks. I did give you enough information that if you did a few little Google searches without almost any effort on your part, you would have been able to figure out within a probably a 90% accuracy rate what stock or what exchange-traded fund I was talking about. I was vague enough where I didn't give you this specific ticker symbol, but I was also specific enough that it wouldn't have been too hard for you to figure it out. Now, again, I bring all this up based on comments I've received from a lot of people over the past couple weeks, and I think most of these people are fairly new to the show. But I just want to reiterate that the Wealth Setting Podcast is not about giving you specific tips or teaching you specific trading strategies. It's more about overall general principles, things that anybody can apply to their life to become a middle-class millionaire or someone that just has a, a middle-class background and income level, how they can be financially independent well before they get to retirement. And speaking of retirement, this show also isn't about the extreme type of retiring early that you hear about where, you know, someone retires at 27 or something like that. In a lot of cases, when you drill down and you see what those people are talking about, I mean, it's almost like the extreme couponing or they're just living really, really frugal. I believe in living well within your means. You know, frankly, I believe in living very cheaply. But that also doesn't mean that I want to live in a shipping container, okay? I mean, I live in a 4,400 square foot house. So just because I'm frugal doesn't mean I've taken a vow of poverty, okay? I'm not a priest. So when I talk about building your wealth and I talk about preparing for retirement and being financially independent, 
you won't hear me give any advice about how you can retire before you're, you know, 30 or how you can make oodles of money in five years. I'd say for most Americans, this is a good 10 to 20 year process. It all depends on what you're starting with, right? How much is your income? How much have you saved? How smart are you? How willing are you to take risk? How successful are you with applying that risk? And that's whether you invest in the stock market or real estate or, you know, Bitcoin for that matter. So I wanted to reiterate those points. And then before we talk about my rationale and one of my risk management strategies, which, which is being in cash, let me also just give a real quick update on the market. This is Friday evening that I'm recording the show. Just a few days ago, Investors Business Daily moved the market status to market an uptrend that occurred because we've seen, you know, a couple of days here where the S&P 500 has gone on to break new highs. So obviously you can't have a marketing correction when the, when the indexes are making new highs. But at the same time, this market remains very choppy and there's some real winners and losers going on in this stock market. Despite the fact that yesterday the market really closed up quite a bit, the overall trading volume was below average. And that occurred again today on Friday. And what's really important about that is that today is the third Friday of the month. That means it's options expiration day. And if you're familiar with that term, you know that that's almost always a time when the markets have an increase in volume because all the contracts are expiring. So you generally have a volume that's so high that you almost have to discount it. Well, today that didn't happen. In fact, today's volume was even less than yesterday's volume. And if you look at the overall three-month average or so, I mean, today's volume was probably at least 10% under the average volume. That's quite a bit, particularly when you consider it was options expiration Friday. So that's a concern to me. That's a red flag. Now, certainly that doesn't mean that the market's going to fall apart. Now, I've been harping on low volume on days that the market goes up and higher volume when the market goes down for quite a bit now. But I mean, even just looking over the last couple of weeks, if you go back to April 29th, that's right about the uh, trading session or two when the market was coming off of all-time highs. And from then until now, we've only had four days where the market traded in above average volume. And you guessed it, those four days were also down days in the market, and in particular, days when we either dropped down to the 50-day moving average or dropped down below the 50-day moving average. Now, this isn't an ironclad algorithm, but it's just a quick way to look at the market and say, boy, it appears that more people are heading for the exits when the market drops than people are rushing in through the doors when the prices are going up. So that's a red flag, and that's concerning to me, particularly when we're at all-time record highs. I'm not predicting an economic collapse. I don't think that we're necessarily going to see a stock market crash or any of those things. I'm just saying that as I look over the past four years, we've not had a 20% correction since 2011. It's a long time. People may be a little bit too overconfident. The valuations are pretty rich. Earnings forecasts are coming down. There's a lot of transitions in the economy right now. You see that in the price of oil. You see that with the concerns of wage inflation. You see that with the value of the dollar fluctuating like it is. Now, all of these things could be culminating into a great market opportunity. I'm not saying that between now and December 31st, we couldn't see this market go up another, you know, 5, 8%. That's totally within the realm of possibility, and I'll tell you why. Although lately we've seen oil prices go up, they're still 40% cheaper than they were a year ago. Oil at $60 a barrel is very much more affordable for the average consumer and for the vast majority of companies that are not in the energy sector. Well, oil at $60 a barrel makes their businesses more profitable than it does a year ago. So that's a positive for earnings. The U.S. dollar has moderated. 
we're up to about, I don't know, 1.14 euros, 1.13, something like that. That's still considerably less from what it was a few years ago. So although that doesn't necessarily kill our exporters and kill our multinational companies, it's come up from where it was just a couple months ago, but it's also giving the producers in like Japan and, and Germany and places like that some breathing room so their economies can improve. So again, that's overall probably a plus. There are more people being employed. So that's a good thing for a consumer-driven economy. Their wages aren't necessarily exploding, not yet anyways, and, and that's a concern for the people that are fearing wage inflation. The, the problem is that we see is that we haven't had any increase in productivity since like 2007. So even if wages aren't necessarily going up, productivity isn't either. And that hurts the corporate bottom line. But again, that's still you know somewhat in check. But as long as all these things I've talked about, if, if oil stays stable at right around $60 a barrel, it won't put the energy sector out of business, and it'll also help energy consumptive countries and companies. If the dollar stays about where it is, that's pretty much good for globe, the global economy. If the U.S. employment rate and wages stay about where they are, that's pretty much good for the economy. So if all these things are chugging along and all these pistons are firing at the same time, then yes, you can see a scenario where the S&P 500 between now and December could go up another, say, 5 or 8%. The real wild card that I haven't discussed here, though, is interest rates. And interest rates are a funny thing because they're artificially manipulated by the Federal Reserve on one hand and, and all the uh, sovereign countries' central banks. They're, they're all manipulating those things through intervention. But at the same time, there is a free market in debt instruments. And when bond investors and people that buy debt, whenever they become very concerned, regardless of what the central banks do, they have enough purchasing power and clout to drive interest rates either up or down. So that's why I say with interest rates, it's a funny thing. It's, it's not as arbitrary as it seems, although it is highly arbitrary. And that's generally because the central banks don't act unilaterally. If you'll remember, we stopped quantitative easing just about the time that Europe entered into their quantitative easing. And then throughout that period, our quantitative easing and now the Europeans' quantitative easing is being supplemented by reoccurring quantitative easing in large economies like China and Japan, you know, your second and third largest economies in the world. So you can see how these central bankers are acting within harmony with each other. And as long as they do that, they can probably game the system. We don't know how long they could keep juggling all those balls, and we also don't know how long people like insurance companies, large retirement and pension funds, and whether those are public or private, we don't know how long they'll go on supporting this low-rate environment that we're in. That's a real wild card, and that cost of money could put a severe drag on the economy by making it more expensive for companies to borrow money and also making it more expensive for consumers to mortgage their homes. But it is possible that we could have a smooth landing, that everything could be perfectly orchestrated, that any rise in interest rates and that cost would be offset by lower oil prices, for example, and, and these other things, right? It's the Goldilocks economy that you've heard of. It's not to this, it's not to that. That is totally within the realm of possibility. That could be what's going to occur over these next six or seven months. But on the other hand, if there's any shock to the economy, if oil prices either go shooting up or even consequently come plummeting back down, remember, that could have a major drain on the economy. Low oil prices, although are good for the consumer, they're not good for the energy sector. Since the recovery, I think something like 40% of corporate reinvestment and corporate capitalization has been done by the energy sector. Well, right now, all that's on hold. 
That means the corporations are not putting money back into their business to buy equipment, to purchase new land, to buy new buildings, to hire new employees. All that reinvestment that has gone into the energy sector over the last six years, that's dried up. If oil prices go down, we won't see a recovery in capital expenditures. There's a lot we can talk about with the oil industry. And in fact, we'll probably come back in an episode or two and, and just talk specifically about oil. There's a lot there. Don't think that just because all these rigs have been shut down, that that means that the cost of oil is going to keep going up. I'm actually shorting oil right now, my own personal account. I think this number right around $60 and above $60 a barrel for West Texas Intermediate is too high based on the numbers that I'm seeing for supply and demand. I think a lot of this has been driven by the fact that people see that the U.S. rig count has been cut. We're only operating with 40% of the rigs that we had prior to six months ago. That's a major reduction in the amount of rigs that are pumping oil. But, and this is the big but, and this is why maybe we'll have a whole episode on it, even though we've had this drastic cut in the rigs, overall U.S. production is down slightly, but not by much. And so what we're seeing is, is that the most efficient and the most productive are, rigs are the ones that are currently in operation. To me, that means that we can easily sustain prices at $60 a barrel and most likely well below that. I've mentioned this before and it's worth bringing up again and I'm, I'm going too much down a rabbit hole right now with oil, but Harold Ham was one of the men that was credited for being a, you know, one of the major wildcatters out in North Dakota that revolutionized the shale industry with fracking and horizontal drilling. And I don't have my notes in front of me on Harold, but I believe he started fracking in North Dakota in the late 80s or early 90s. And when he started that, the average price of oil was somewhere around $20, $25 a barrel. Now, even if you add inflation into that, that's still well below $60 a barrel. And the point I'm trying to make here is, is that Harold Hamm and all these other people that are responsible for this shale oil revolution, they weren't drilling for oil when it was $100 a barrel. They were drilling for oil back when the oil was very much cheaper than it is even today. So they thought they could make a profit at $25 or $30 a barrel, or they never would have started it. So I still think we could see the bottom fall out on the price of oil. But I digress. The point is, if we see any major shocks in oil, in interest rates, in wage inflation, in major sovereign debt countries defaulting or any kind of currency collapses or a real estate bubble bursting in China, any of those things could put a real damper on this stock market. And that's what leads me into my discussion about why I believe being in cash is a viable risk strategy. And we will have some subsequent episodes on managing risk. I know many of you have asked about stops and puts and things of that nature. I'll get around to talking about that. Go back through the archives, though. Look at the list of things we've talked about in the past, and you will see that I did at least one episode on how to short the market or how to take advantage of a declining market. So I have talked about that in the past. We'll come back and talk about it more. But in today's episode, because of all the comments I've been receiving, I really want to focus on why I like being in cash in certain times. And one of those times is right now. And that's because I feel that the market's very volatile for all the reasons I just mentioned. On any given day, we're seeing the market maybe go up 1%, but then the next day it goes down 1%. If interest rates go up, then utility stocks and other dividend-type paying companies go down. If the U.S. dollar comes down, then the multinational companies go up the next day. When energy prices go down, the energy sector companies get hurt When and the next day when energy bounces up. And it's been extremely volatile over the last six weeks. Some periods we're seeing an easy 2 or 3% swing per day in energy alone. When that happens, that has a major impact on not only the energy sector, but then also all the energy consumers. 
These are very turbulent times despite the fact that the index is at our all-time highs. So that's concerning, but at the same time, I mentioned interest rates. If interest rates do go up, and they've gone up significantly in the last two weeks, I keep trying to make this point with people because they feel that bond funds are safe and bond funds are not safe. Anytime interest rates go up, if the yield on interest rates go up, that means the potential on bond funds potentially can go down because they work inversely. So at other periods of time, when we had uncertainty in the stock market like we do right now, well, it wasn't a problem. You didn't have to go to cash. You could just move your money over to a midterm or even a long-term bond fund. Many times that would work out great for you. But I'm concerned about doing that in this environment because this arbitrary nature that I just discussed with bonds, if someone in the Federal Reserve or Draghi over in the European Central Bank or Abenomics in Japan or if they do something in China, that can drastically affect bond rates both up or down. And since we're at 30-year lows, it's pretty likely that eventually they're going to move the other direction. They're going to go up. Now, they could still go lower. They could go negative. But when you try and play the odds and you look at how far they've come down over the last 30 years, you've got to think that at some point we're going to bottom out and they're going to start going up. Whenever they go up, that will affect the principal on bond funds. And if you're in bond funds, you'll lose money. That's why simply moving from stocks to bonds isn't necessarily a safe, no-brainer thing to do. It depends what type of an environment you're in. And right now, it's a risky environment for both the stock market and the bond market. That's why I prefer cash right now, today, at this point. And remember, I'm not making a recommendation to you. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you should go to cash. I'm just telling you that that's what I'm doing. And I'm doing it as part of, of my risk management strategy. So for the many of you that have commented about, you know, why would I put my money in cash when I'm not making any interest off of it? You have to remember what I've said in the past. Right now, despite the fact that people are worried about rising inflation, inflation is still right around 2%. And for the entire year, it's not projected to go above 2%. So if we stay anywhere near 2%, well, I've already made that on my investments earlier in the year. So I could sit out from now all the way through till December and pretty much break even when it comes to the risk of inflation. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to do that. I'm not proposing that you should do that. I jumped in the market a good 80% or so back between October 20th and around December 15th. And then I got out of the market until I believe it was mid to late February. We rode out a trend then for about four weeks. But since the end of March, pretty much over the last six weeks, I've been primarily in cash, especially when it comes to managing my client's money. I'm very concerned about preserving my client's capital. They not only pay me to grow their money, they pay me to protect it. One of my mantras when it comes to building wealth is build, preserve, and grow. That's something I want to reiterate in today's podcast. My clients are responsible for building their own wealth. And what I mean by that is if you come to me with $1,000, I can't help you. It's not a big enough of a nest egg to reach critical mass where I can really do anything for you. Now, if you come to me with $200,000, that's a different story. There's things I can do with that. And so when it comes to managing my client money, I can't build their wealth. They need to build it initially for themselves. But once they have that large nest egg, then they can bring that to me and I can help them manage that with the intent of preserving and growing it. So when I talk about build, preserve, and grow, it's like a three-legged stool. My clients are responsible for the building part. That's when I talk about learning how to earn money and learning how to save money. That's the building part. And then I can help them with the investment strategy with a key focus on doing our best to preserve that wealth. That means not losing it and then growing it and either growing it through stock appreciation or through dividends or through interest from bond payments. 
So build, preserve, and grow. Right now in this market, with the high volatility in both the stocks and bonds, and the fact that we're at all-time record highs in the major indexes, while at the same time in all-time record lows on bond yields, I'm very, very concerned about the preservation part of that three-part strategy. You see, it's far easier to build your wealth and grow your wealth if you're preserving it. For those of you that lost 40 or 50% of your money back in 2008, you know how hard it was to get that back. Many of you have never gotten it back. By working on that strategy of preserve your wealth, you don't take that major fall when the floor drops out of the stock market. If you can do that, as the market recovers, it'll make it that much more easy to grow your wealth. That's why at this period in time right now, I'm primarily invested in cash. Now, again, that could change tomorrow because, as I said, we could see this market move up to all, you know, beyond more highs, 5, 8%, if all the pistons are hitting at the same time. If the dollar and if oil and if interest rates and if wage costs, if they're all stable from where we're at right now, we can see American corporations making profits of anywhere from, say, 8 to 12%, and that would easily put the stock market up another, say, 8% from where it is today. So that can happen. But again, it's also very likely that between now and, say, October or September, we could see some major hiccups along the way. And since we haven't had a major pullback since 2011, four years, people might get a little worried when things start to fall apart and that could make them fall further. I mean, even if we only went back to a nine and a half or whatever percent pullback we saw back in October, you saw how quickly things fell apart last October. That was primarily driven by panic over the Ebola virus. I mean, how ridiculous was that? But if you go back and you track that stock market plunge, I believe it was October 10th to October 19th, somewhere in that range, a lot of that can be attributed to Ebola, which was immaterial. But you can see how easily these little things can affect the stock market. I bring this up because many of you are interpreting my version of swing trading as moving in and out of the market over very short periods of time, not necessarily day trading, but over periods of a few days or a few weeks. You're seeing all the volatility in the market, and you're saying, hey, I can make an extra 1% or 2% just because there's so much volatility. And you say, well, you know, shoot, if I did that 20 times a year, even if I only made 1% a shot, I'd be making 20% return on my money in a year. Well, that's true, and I'm not saying you can't do it, but I'm just cautioning you, and I'm particularly cautioning those of you that are inexperienced or haven't done this before, or maybe even you have done it the last year or two. But remember, we've been in some extraordinarily good markets the last three years. And here's where I want to explain my version of swing trading. Or not, not my version, let me rephrase that. I want to explain my methodology or my method of swing trading. And it's a little bit different than those of you that are just trying to eke out a 1% or 2% gain over a, over a few-day period. There's not a lot of room for a margin of error there. My swing trading looks for short-term, near-term, and sometimes long-term trends that we can take advantage of and occur over several weeks to several months. I mean, ultimately, I would love to be able to get in and out of trades over a two- or three-month period. That's the most efficient way to do it, and when you can find something that's moving in that direction where the momentum's right, that's where you'll make the most amount of money. There's various reasons for that. We won't go into it now. But when I'm doing something like that, I'm not investing my money trying to make 1% or 2%. I'm committing my money knowing that I might lose 5, 6, 7, 8%, even 10%. That's likely. In any given day or any given week, the market can fall apart, and it can fall apart faster than you can get out. 
you're not a high-frequency trader, you don't have the priority status of Goldman Sachs, things can fall apart very quickly, and if you're not nimble enough, you can lose a lot of money very quickly. And so anytime you're investing in anything, you have to say, hey, I could lose 5 or 10% on this a trade or on this investment. That's why we diversify. That's why we don't put all of our money into one stock or one sector or one industry. That's why we don't always commit all of our money at any given time. We may only go in the market 25% or 50% or 75%. It all depends on how we're assessing the risk and reward of that particular trade. So let's think in terms of those of you that are going out there and trying to make just 1% or 2% over the next couple days or over the next week. If your upside is only going to be 1% or 2%, you're not going to be able to absorb that normal risk of the marketplace where it can fall apart 5 to 10%. And so when that takes place, if it does, you'll get wiped out. Or the other part of that strategy is that, is that you're thinking that if you make 20 trades a year, you're going to be right every time. And that's not going to happen. Yeah, you might get lucky once, twice. You can't be lucky all the time. None of us are good enough traders to assume that every trade we make is going to pay off. Warren Buffett doesn't assume that. No trend traders assume that. Everybody assumes that they're going to lose more times than they win. The difference is the way we make money as professional traders, though, isn't because we're winning more than we're losing in terms of individual trades. It's because on the trades that we win on, we make more than on the trades that we lose on. And that's because we develop risk strategies. Remember, I talked to you about any trade I go into, I know it's likely that I could lose 5 or 10%. I'm accounting for that. I'm building that into my model. But here's the big point. When I go into the trade, I'm not assuming that I'm only going to make 5 or 10%. I'm only engaging in trades where I feel that the potential to win is far greater than that. Let's go back to last October when we saw oil prices collapsing. And if you'll remember on this podcast, I mentioned I was going into transportation exchange traded funds. I was buying some individual trucking companies. I was buying a, a particular airline stock. I did that because I could see that the momentum was with that sector of the economy. Those stocks were going to be favored by the lower oil prices and the people on Wall Street were putting money into those individual stocks in those sectors. You could see that happening on the charts. The charts correlated with the narrative that you could drive by what was going on with lower oil prices and you could extrapolate that those industries and those companies would make at least 30%. So I went into that trade with the anticipation of making at least 30%. Now, if you go back and you look at how transportation and airline stocks have done since last October, you will see that in almost every case, they've appreciated very much close to that 30% mark. And in fact, I sold too early. Many of those went on to appreciate 70, 80%. From now, even with where oil prices are today, back to October, look at what some of these companies have done. The momentum was there. The wind was at those companies' backs. So it went along with the narrative. It made economic sense. And then you could see it in the charts. You could see what was happening with price and volume on those individual stocks. And that's why I made those moves. Now, I ended up only holding that position until mid-December because some other things occurred. And you'll know by my strategies, I don't get greedy. When I see thin ice or when I see red flags, I'm not opposed to selling because I want to preserve my wealth. The best way to preserve your wealth is to take profits. So back in December, when I sold those positions, and you can go back and listen to the podcast. I, I said on the air what it was. I didn't mention the specific stocks, but I gave you an indication of what it was. And I don't have all that in front of me right now. But of those four positions that I just talked about, one of them was an airline. And I'll tell you now, it was JetBlue. 
And again, with the hints I gave you, I pretty much narrowed it down that it had to either be JetBlue or Alaska Airlines. And I think if you'd have bought either one of them, you'd have done just fine. But the point is that the gain on JetBlue over that two and a half month period or so that I held, it was something like over 30%, right over 30%. It was a dead ringer for what I was going after. I mentioned investing in two trucking companies. One of those trucking companies was Old Dominion. Go back and research it. Look at its price around October 20th and look at about what it sold for somewhere around December 15th. You'll see that increased over 10%. Now another trucking company I invested in was a, it was a smaller firm. I don't even remember the name of it offhand. I actually thought that that was going to perform the best of any of the transportation companies that I was investing in. And you know what? It ended up being a loss for me. I think I lost something like 5 or 6% on that one. But it was within my margin of error. The transportation ETF that I invested in, well, overall, that was up nearly 12% over that two-and-a-half-month period, something like that. Don't quote me on it. Just go back and look at a standard large-cap transportation exchange-traded fund over that period, October to December. The ticker symbol in that might have been XTN. Again, it's not hard to find. I don't invest in penny stocks. I don't invest in things that have low liquidity, very small capital type things or, or stocks or exchange traded funds that, that don't trade a lot in any given day because I don't want to get stuck with any of these things. I want something that's highly liquid. So if I tell you I'm in a transportation exchange traded fund, if you Google that, you'll be able with, again, a 90% certainty, be able to figure out the one or two funds that I'm in. Just knowing that I'm going to be in highly capitalized, highly liquid funds, things that are top rated. I'm telling you this because I just want to give you a quick example of that period just, you know, six months ago when we invested. I went into that with the intent of making 30%. Now, I didn't do that. JetBlue was in the neighborhood of 30%. The transportation ETF was in the neighborhood of 12%. Old Dominion was in the neighborhood of, what did I say, 10%. And then that other smaller trucking company lost like 5 or 6%. But if you add all those up, I still came out to a very nice profit in just a two-and-a-half-month period and that was only one portion of my portfolio. That, that wasn't the only thing I invested in. That was just the amount of my portfolio that I committed to transportation stocks. So although I was willing to risk losing maybe 5 or 10%, I saw an upside of potentially 30% if everything happened perfectly. Where everything didn't happen perfectly, I didn't gain 30%, but I also didn't lose 10%. I came out with a nice profit. And I only had to tie my money up for like two and a half months. That's what I mean by assessing your risk and your reward. Look for the momentum in the market. You want to trade in stocks and sectors and industries that are being favored by current trends. You don't want to just willy-nilly throw your money out there. And you don't want to go out looking for just a one-to-one -one gain. If the market is as likely to go up 1% as it is down 1%, those odds are not in your favor. That's called even money. You're looking for a multiplier. You're looking to be able to get 20 or 30% growth on your money and only risk 5 or 10% of it. You're not going to win on every trade. And if you can limit your losses to 5 or 10% and on your gains you can make 10 to 30%, over time you're going to come out a winner. And I said over time, not over a couple weeks or a couple months, but over maybe 10 or 20 years. And over that 10 or 20 years, your wealth will build. So when you have success, you're not going to be making just a few hundred dollars or thousand dollars, but you're going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's how you become wealthy in America on a middle class income. You put your money to work for you, but you do your best to never put it at unnecessary risk. And wherever possible, you try and protect yourself from a catastrophic loss. This is a concept that I just can't emphasize enough. You want to practice risk management.
Well, this episode is going long. I still have another, at least one more example and several more things I want to talk about. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut this episode off right now. We'll come back tomorrow. We'll do part two. We'll wrap things up. I'm taking the time to point out to you how I think my variation of swing trading, where I'm trading over weeks to months, I'm going into it with a plan where I'm going to do my best to minimize my losses at 5 to 10%. I know there's that risk there, but I also think there's the potential of maybe a 25 or a 30% gain. That's my version of swing trading. It's very much different than just going in and trading for a few days and hoping to pick up 1% or 2% on a market swing for that particular day or that particular week. Now, I'm not saying you can't make that happen. I always encourage people to develop their own style. I've just been doing this for a long time. I don't want to see you get hurt or see you get burned. So be very cautious. Be very careful. Make sure you're pursuing the appropriate risk-reward that you're comfortable with. Well, that'll wrap things up for today. I really appreciate you listening. As always, if you have questions or concerns, you want to get in touch with me, you can do that through the website, wealthsteading.com. Until tomorrow, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.